Hi, this is Dr. Karen Becker, and I have a very special guest who's visiting me again, Dr. Ron Schultz. Thank you for joining me. Dr. Schultz heads up the Department of Pathobiological Sciences at UW-Madison College of Vet Med. And he's joining me today um, to go over a couple of questions we have about core and non-core vaccines. My, my big questions today are about non-core vaccines, but why don't you just explain briefly what the difference between core and non-core vaccines are? I'd be happy to do that. Uh, some years ago now, uh, starting with the American Association of Feline Practitioners, they decided to look at all of the USDA licensed vaccines that were available for the cat. And they put them into categories. And the first and most important category were the core vaccines, or those vaccines that every cat should receive out of the entire list. And then they looked at the list and decided whether there were any vaccines that should not be given to any cat. And they were called the not recommended vaccines. And then everything in between the core and the not recommended were so-called non-core or optional vaccines and was based on need. And there are a lot of factors that need to be considered when selecting or not selecting a non-core. So that's how we got those three categories, categories. of vaccines. And for kitties, the non-core vaccine, phenylalkemia, FIV, and chlamydia are the non-core vaccines. Well, the, the current guidelines and the new feline guidelines we have moved the feline leukemia vaccine into a kitten core vaccine. We would like to see every kitten receive two doses of feline leukemia vaccine. And my uh, take on that is that I would be happy if that were to occur and the animal really never got another dose of FELV because of the age-related natural resistance that develops by about a year of age, at the very most, what I recommend and have been recommending for many years is two doses of kitten vaccine, and they must be two to six weeks apart. If you go longer than six weeks, you've got to start again. But with those two doses and revaccination at a year of age, then I think that uh, we would really have immunized a large percentage of the population if we would follow that as a core program. Now, the guidelines are going to recommend revaccination after the kitten series at a year and then about every two to three years. I don't believe that those vaccines are necessary after the yearly vaccination, but as I just said, even if we could get the two core kitten vaccines, which is when the kitten is most susceptible to infection and to the development of persistent viremia, which is, of course, what you're trying to prevent with the vaccine. And those guidelines, of course, kind of speaking to the masses, if you've got strictly indoor kittens with no exposure to other cats coming in, they're basically in a sequestered, captive environment. You would still recommend? Yes, you I would. Mainly because indoor kittens very quickly in some households become outdoor kittens. And so... By, by default. By default. But in a prime environment, if you have an animal that is never, that's naive, but will remain naive, and you know in your heart it will remain naive... Then I don't need to vaccinate right. that animal. right. It's just that I know of too many of course, instances of where course. that doesn't happen. Yes, and of course, even in, in what you, your teaching position, when you're looking at general population dynamics, both of us know that people have the best intentions, and yet this is how disease outbreak occurs. Exactly, yeah. yes. And so what we're trying to achieve is population immunity. Mm -hmm. And with FELV, or feline leukemia virus, if they're aren't persistently viremic cats around, mm -hmm. we could eliminate that right. disease. Right. And I have been told by my uh, colleagues uh, 
in Switzerland that they have essentially eliminated oh. or eradicated feline leukemia virus from their cat population. Now, that's a state about or, or about the size of many of our states. Right. And I think we could eliminate it in a state too if we did sure. what they've done. We would have to in have fact, a collective uh, effort. Right. But I've I've been trying to talk my colleagues from Hawaii into trying to eliminate mm -hmm. it from there mm -hmm. because you know they've had Feasible. some real mm -hmm. problems with feline leukemia over the yep. years in their cats. Yep. They've got large feral populations, and I'm not suggesting feral populations are any more of a threat than pet cats because I've done a lot of feral studies and others have done it, and the prevalence of persistent viremia in feral cats is no higher than yes. it is in pet cats. Very in fact, it's higher in pet cats. Very important point to make. Yes. A lot of people assume that those animals that are diseased... They, they out, are clean. Yeah, exactly. They are very right. clean. Right. Good point. Yeah. So your concerns about feline leukemia vaccine and um, vaccine-induced sarcomas? Well, there are uh, two types uh, of vaccines that were initially linked to injection site sarcomas in cats. And they happen to be adjuvanted leukemia and adjuvanted rabies. Mm -hmm. And any adjuvanted vaccine in the cat is in a genetically predisposed cat. And keep in mind that all of these adverse reactions that occur to vaccines and that occur uh, in terms of uh, the development of tumors and so forth, it's the genetics of, of the course, cat. it's the terrain of the body. Right, you bet. for sure. And so if you have an adjuvanted vaccine, that vaccine in the predisposed cat is more likely to lead to an injection site sarcoma than a modified live would ever sure. lead to that. Sure. Um, there are no such thing as modified live rabies, of course. No. And so... But we had those. All our rabies vaccines up until the mid-85s were all modified live. Wow. And so that, that was before me becoming a veterinarian. Yes. Things have changed. <laughs> yes. No longer an option. Uh, FIV vaccine in cats? I don't recommend it. Good. It It's uh, a vaccine that it, when used, you must use at least three doses for your primary immunization, and then it must be given annually. But one of the major problems is that there are so-called clades, which are strains of FIV that are out there that the vaccine mm -hmm. is not really able to protect against. So in studies that were done by one of my colleagues in Scotland, Dr. Oz Jarrett, who has done a lot of retrovirus work, FELV and FIV, he used the clade and there was zero protection mm. to that particular clade. So uh, there is that as a concern. The other thing is that um, FIV is of concern, but uh, the percentage of infected cats and so forth is fairly low, and we just right. don't, don't see it. We don't consider it um, when we look at... Uh, what vaccine should be in shelters mm -hmm. for a number of reasons, and uh, so and I don't, I don't consider that. And how about chlamydia? No, uh, chlamydia, in studies where we've been involved again in shelters, because this particular vaccine is mainly designed to help reduce the disease called feline respiratory and feline infectious respiratory disease complex or respiratory diseases of the cat. And in shelters where we have uh, real problems, and we rarely have them in pet cats, this disease is not really an issue in pet cats, but in shelters we haven't been able to show that chlamydia helps. And that's also true. We do have a feline bordetella vaccine as well, and I don't recommend that because we haven't seen it of benefit in shelters. Do you see do you see feline owners titering their cats more or no really uh, very few uh, cat owners uh, bother titering 
And I'm not sure that there's any need in the cat to titer. Uh, you've got uh, really one disease, which is probably the most important disease of cats, so-called feline panleukopenia virus, which is feline parvo, which is the ancestral virus of canine parvo. <laughs> Ironically, that disease used to be called feline distemper. Mm -hmm. It has nothing to do with canine distemper virus. In fact, it has to do more with uh, canine parvovirus. That's the only titer you can do in a cat that would in any way relate to protective immunity. You cannot do Khaleesi and you can't do herpes because those are both respiratory infections and it's not so much the serum antibody that provides protection against Khaleesi, it's the local secretory antibody. Hmm. So serum means nothing to Khaleesi mm -hmm. other than the animal has seen Khaleesi. Mm -hmm. And for herpes, it's not so much the antibody, but it is more cellular immunity to herpes viruses to try and control herpes. This and so doing titers in a cat, really, I don't recommend okay. even wasting the time or the, time money. the money. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Good information. Dogs. Dogs. Dogs are a whole different issue when Definitely it comes to titer. recommend. And in fact, Antibody even the, this testing. term, titer, yes. um, what would be your preferential term? My preferential term would be protective antibody or antibody testing, not titers, because frequently today we aren't doing antibody titers. Mm -hmm. There are many tests that are yes or no tests. Titers, by definition, mean that you're making dilutions of serum and testing those dilutions. And most often in a conventional antibody test, they're doubling dilutions. And so you start out with a dilution of, let's say, one to two, and then you make doubling dilutions. So it's four, eight, 16, 32, 64, 128. Now, the reason that I said that is not because you don't know what a doubling dilution is or others don't, but there is too much emphasis placed on those numbers. numbers. And what I tell my veterinary medical students is with an antibody titer, if we would translate that titer into dollars, and I told you that I was going to give you $8,000, and then told you there was no difference between 8000 and 4000 you wouldn't agree with me. And you'd also not agree with me when I said there was no difference between $8,000 and $16,000. Yet with a titer, there is no difference between that four and 16, because that's what an 8,000 titer is. It's somewhere between 4,000 and 16,000. And yet veterinarians and owners both get really hung up on those numbers. Oh, they do. And uh, my laboratory does a lot of antibody testing to look for protective immunity. And they might send three uh, samples from three different dogs in the same environment. And one will have a rabies uh, antibody test result because, or sorry, uh, distemper, because I don't do rabies, that's only done at Kansas State, State. Yep. but uh, distemper, and they'll see a uh, number of 32 because we do a virus neutralization, which are these doubling dilution titers, which are rarely done by any other lab. Mm -hmm. If a, a commercial test is being run, it's not generally the gold standard and it's not titers. But that 32 and then another dog in the household will be something like uh, 10,000. And oh, Once dog A is really not protected. protected. Right. And dog B it's was... toxic. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Well, both dogs are equally protected. Right. Right. And that's what is so difficult about those numbers. 
So if we would only use the animal has antibody at a level considered uh, protective or the animal does not have an antibody mm -hmm. considered protective, that would probably be the most important thing. And that's why a lot of these new tests mm -hmm. are sort of yes or no tests. Right. Which actually, I think, really helps to remove some of the confusion. It does. Not only for the veterinarian, but let's say for people that are looking to titer prior to boarding their dogs or taking their dogs into right. an environment where they want to make sure that there's protection, a yes-no response for a protective antibody is much more not just convincing, but it helps reduce everyone's stress in terms of being able to determine or 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 um, acknowledge that the test is is a yes no protection no protection versus what the the gray zone of the numbers, which is confusing and sometimes um, causes some people to vaccinate unnecessarily. Right, it is confusing to the owner, to the veterinarian, uh, and the the uh, kennel. Uh, yes. So it really should be interpreted. It shouldn't mm -hmm. be left up to, to someone to try to figure out, well, uh, lab A or company A did this test, and what does it mean? Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of, lot of uh, confusion there. And unfortunately, not very many of the laboratories or the companies that uh, have these tests done by those laboratories really knows whether or not it's protective. Someone like myself, and there are very few of us in the world that actually can do challenge studies right. and demonstrate what is or isn't protective by actually challenging the animal with the virulent organism. I have to do that all the time when I'm doing vaccine-related right. uh, research mm -hmm. because that's how we determine whether a vaccine is working or not. But in the case of the two on-site antibody tests that are available right now, one is called Titer Check. It was initially developed by and sold by Symbiotics, but it now is owned by Zoetis, which happens to be Pfizer Animal Health, but they changed their name recently, so there's Zoetis Animal Health. They now own TiterCheck. And the company that has the other test, BioGal, that's called VaxiCheck. And I have also done testing on that by uh, challenge exposure to know what's protective or not. But most labs that run the gold standards don't know what's protective and what's, don't, what's not protective. Very often you'll see in the literature that an animal must have an 80 mm -hmm. titer on a hemagglutination inhibition for canine parvo for it to be protective. What they're talking about there is a passive titer of mm. 80, oh. not an active. Okay. And let me tell you, if you have a titer of 20 in an actively active. immunized or vaccinated dog, that's protective. But this is also wildly confusing it to is. most general practitioners. And it is. also by default, why veterinarians say the whole entire issue is confusing. There are no, there's no gold standard of what we can accept or not accept. So we should just vaccinate in place of doing these titers because the whole darn thing's confusing. It's wrong. frustrating. Exactly. It's wrong it because is. why would you want to vaccinate? Well, and so for veterinarians, it's easy. It's simple. Just do it. It's, it's money-making. There's revenue there. It's pretty frustrating for proactive veterinarians like myself um, who are putting the effort into educating their clients to be able to make sure that the dogs are protected without acquiring too many vaccines. Then when I write a letter and say, here's the copy of the titer, the dog's protected, you can go to the boarding facility, and sometimes boarding facilities or the other veterinarian says, you know, I just, this is just too new, it's too strange, there's a lot of controversy surrounding it, so I just am not going to accept this. Do you have any words for boarding facilities or people that um, simply don't believe that checking protective antibody is a viable way of establishing that the dog's protected or not? Do you have any words for Yes, them? my recommendation to owners and to veterinarians that uh, encounter uh, 
kennels or boarding facilities like that is I tell them the owners to find a new yeah. kennel or boarding facility. Good advice. And that's exactly what I say is you need to look elsewhere. Yes. These are just uneducated uneducated people. They love dogs, but they're not educated with right. with new and improved options to protect animal health. Correct. And revaccination is by no means an assurance that that animal right. is protected. Right. I've seen dogs that have been vaccinated multiple times and have no antibody. Mm -hmm. And when challenged, they Succumb. are susceptible. Mm -hmm. And that even includes rabies vaccines. With rabies vaccines, we talk about revaccination. I've seen dogs that have been vaccinated five or more times that have no antibody. And for rabies and distemper and parvo, if you don't have antibody, that animal is not protected. And I don't want to hear anyone say, well, they may have cell-mediated immunity. Antibodies really only occur to complex antigens if T cells or cellular immunity is involved in making that antibody. So when you look at an antibody response, you're looking at the fact that that animal had T cells that had to help those B cells make antibody. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, if you have a dog that hasn't been vaccinated for years and it's still antibody positive, that also means that there are memory effector B cells there producing antibody in the absence of overt antigenic stimulation. So what I do to demonstrate that and to demonstrate that, for example, dogs have lifelong immunity when vaccinated with distemper and parvo, is I keep them in a distemper, parvo-free environment. I vaccinate them as puppies, don't revaccinate them again, and then seven years later, I not only look at antibody, I challenge them mm -hmm. with the virulent virus, and if they're protected, that means that they have protective immunity. And if they don't have antibody, <clears throat> I'm very concerned about challenging mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm because I know that they're very likely to get sick and die. Yep. And so you, what's wonderful, you are the man that are doing the studies to be able to demonstrate to all of us exactly that this theory isn't true, correct, and that if these animals are demonstrating that they have an antibody response, even though they're tighter, may be low, that anamnistic, that memory response will kick in, and like you said, 48 hours later, their bodies will be able to effectively handle exposure. Ab absolutely. Yep. And they'll bring that infection under control, and the infection will occur, but it won't lead to disease. Yep. And there's a real difference between infection and disease. Mm -hmm. And in fact, reinfection is not a bad thing. Exactly. Because that leads to natural, yeah, yeah, that leads to mm -hmm. uh, a natural stimulation mm -hmm. of immunity. Mm -hmm. So many vaccines do not provide what is referred to as sterilizing immunity. Sterilizing immunity means that that animal won't even get infected. Mm -hmm. And there are some vaccines like that, but for, very few. For example? Distemper. Sterilizing immunity. You can get sterilizing immunity. Parvo, you can get sterilizing immunity. Adeno? Adeno, no, because adeno to uh, replicates or infects the respiratory tract. Mm -hmm. And the vaccines that induce sterilizing immunity are almost always against viruses and always against viruses that cause systemic, systemic disease. not local yeah. disease. So uh, it's part of distemper, protective immunity for life in most cases, not all of course, but most. Right. Just like measles, mumps, and rubella. Mm -hmm. I tell dog owners that their distemper parvo adeno is the measles, mumps, rubella of their children. Mm -hmm. so. so, for example, I was immunized to distemper when I was five years old, and there were no vaccines for distemper or for measles, measles. when I was five years old. Uh, in fact, there was no uh, there was no distemper vaccines when I was five years old either. <laughs> they came later. But what uh, 
what really is important there is that 50 years later, I had my blood taken, and I did this for my uh, veterinary students to demonstrate to them. I had the blood sent to the State Lab of Hygiene here at uh, UW, and they did a whole variety of serologic tests for me. Now, fortunately, the medical director of the lab is a good friend of mine, so I wasn't charged for any of the tests. The number of tests they did would have cost about $2,500. Wow. They charge far more than we charge in veterinary medicine of course, because, sure. of course, third party pays, but there was no one paying for this, mm -hmm. including me. But the, for example, my measles antibody response came back at a level considered protective. Now, how do I have protective immunity 50 years after being naturally immunized with measles? Well, that's these long-term or memory effector B cells. Mm -hmm. And it's only recently in immunology that we've discovered these long-lived, what they call uh, in some species, plasma cells. And they're in our bone marrow, and they're programmed, and they or the daughter cells that they generate will continue to produce that Protect, antibody. Yeah. And so a and dog that lives on the average, let's say 15 years, will still have those cells out at about 15 years of age to distemper or parvo. And the good news is those being the two really life-threatening diseases that are still potentially active, of course, in our environment, the dogs could acquire, unlike, not to say that some of the other vaccines we're gonna discuss, but for instance, the Giardia vaccine. Giardia is, is unfortunate, causes diarrhea, well, but here, not life-threatening. Here's the fortunate thing about Giardia. It's no longer on the market, so you can't get it. And how, how not about, in the cat and not in the dog. How about the dental? That's the no longer that's that's no longer on the market either. The uh, vaccine uh, was in clinical trials under USDA authorization for four years, and at the end of the four years, when they looked at the results, it did not work. So it was taken off the market. And I must credit Pfizer, because they were the ones that made that particular product. They were uh, willing to take it off the market. Why do you think some of these, in my opinion, totally unnecessary vaccines even enter the marketplace, even if it's for a test run? Well, Just... uh, I think when they enter into the market, it's very often because there is some potential for them to provide benefit. But I think that what's really critical is that we do have a, a test period and actually determine whether they do or don't uh, meet uh, the requirements for licensure. And I think that the USDA is looking much more carefully at those kinds of things now, now. than they were in the past, mainly because we understand a lot more now about what immunity is, how to measure it, how it translates into protective immunity, or how it translates into a vaccine being effective. Sure. For example, uh, one of my favorite uh, vaccines, uh, canine coronavirus vaccine, which I've always referred to as a vaccine in search of a disease. The reason that that got started years ago is when we first had canine parvo come into the canine species, which was in 1978. Before that time, there was never canine parvo. But when it did come in, we didn't know what was causing disease. And unfortunately, a lot of those dogs had coronavirus. In fact, I was at Cornell and at the Baker Institute as they were coming in. Mm. And we, weren't, we didn't even know what was causing it, but we kept finding all this coronavirus. Well, as it turned out, every animal has coronavirus, and it's, it's common in puppies, and it's a good virus. It's not, not really causing disease. So when they finally discovered this minute virus, which parvo is, it's an extremely small spherical virus, then they found what actually caused the disease. Now, 
I and, and uh, some of my colleagues at that time were able to demonstrate that corona, if coexisting with parvo, could enhance the virulence of parvo. But since, since that time, we've also found that certain bacteria in the intestinal tract, parasites in the intestinal tract, and even just starving a dog for a period of about 24 hours or more, and then starting to feed it. And if it gets infected with parvo at that time, the disease is much worse. Because of the turnover or the replication of a cell in the intestinal tract called the crypt epithelial cell, because that's what the parvo requires to grow. And so I've done studies that have been published since the 1990s where I looked at what benefit canine coronavirus vaccine would provide even in a dual infection, and what it provided was nothing. nothing. And so we do have a canine corona, which is of no value, but why do we still have it? Because veterinarians are still buying it. And the only thing that will take a licensed vaccine off the market is for that product to not be sold and the company to essentially discontinue it. So that's what has happened with Giardia vaccines. That's what's happened with the Perferomonas. And, uh, and Corona is still on the market, but then this is a really good example of being an educated pet owner, enough to discern it's just unnecessary. Just, just ask that your you dog not receive a Corona vaccine under any circumstance. Okay, one that I'm not familiar with, that I have a lot of questions about, but I'm unable to answer people's questions, is the rattlesnake vaccine. The rattlesnake vaccine is really an aid in the prevention of death caused by the bite of a rattlesnake. And um, it does have benefit in keeping that animal alive if it were bitten by a western diamondback rattlesnake. Now, when that vaccine is used, it's really important for the owner to understand that the dog must still be treated mm. for snake bite because one, it may not have been a Western Diamondback rattlesnake, mm -hmm. so there'd be zero protection there. The vaccine, in most instances, will not prevent the venom from causing disease. So you still have to take measures, but what the vaccine does is it provides extra time to get that animal treated. So, and it, it seems to work well in that regard. Is, do you have concerns about the adjuvant used? Do you have concerns about vaccine reactions? I don't know enough about the vaccine to know if there is unfortunately, risk benefit. Yeah, unfortunately, nobody knows very much about that vaccine and unfortunately hasn't been tested adequately in my opinion uh, it should be tested in a dog, and most of the tests were done in rabbits and mice mm. and other species. So I'm not quite sure why that is the case, because we have to test every other vaccine in the target animal species, and I hmm. would say that that's what would, should be required here. Too. So just not a whole lot of research done on that particular vaccine, correct? Well, not a lot of research done, okay. no. Uh, Lyme disease. Yes. Lyme disease vaccines, there are a number of them. Uh, there are whole killed organism vaccines or Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria that causes that disease. And then there are re there's a recombinant vaccine that just has the outer surface protein A component, which is an important protective component if you're making a vaccine to provide protective immunity. And in general, my recommendation with, with Lyme disease, and I know there are a lot of people that are concerned about the uh, tick preventatives and, and using them on their animals, but if you're in a high-risk area, and for example, right here where we're sitting in Wisconsin, this is not a high-risk area, but you just go 70 miles northwest of here, like La Crosse, and I did studies years ago here, and I've done them just last year, and we run around a 4% infection rate in this part of Wisconsin. 
You go to La Crosse and you're running about a 69, 70% infection wow. rate. And in parts of Long Island, they run 90% yes, infection. I've heard that. East so when you get to western uh, Wisconsin or eastern Minnesota, you have a very good chance of your dog getting infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. So what I recommend to people in this part of Wisconsin, if you're going to be vacationing in the western part of the state, which is northwestern part is a, a popular vacation area near Minocqua and so forth, I recommend that probably uh, not only do you want to use the tick preventative, you want to vaccinate because the vaccine is about 60 to 75%. The vaccines are. I don't think any of them are, are much different in terms of efficacy, somewhere around 60 to 75% effective. Effective they, at? At preventing the organism from causing disease. You do not ever protect infection right. with a bacteria. Right. You have no sterilizing right. immunity against virus or right. against bacteria, bacteria like you right. do viruses. Right. Yeah. So you have concerns about vaccine reactions with Lyme disease? Yes, there are uh, potential concerns. Uh, the bacterial vaccines always carry a, a greater risk for especially immediate type uh, adverse reactions just because of their nature. So with both leptospirobacterins or vaccines and Borrelia burgdorferi, they're very closely related organisms, mm -hmm. by the way. They're both, as you know, spirochetes. Uh, just the nature of the bacteria causes mm -hmm. in certain animals an adverse reaction. Right. In fact, they have a, a, an ability to stimulate what's known as an IgE antibody, which is responsible for immediate or type 1 hypersensitivity. Mm -hmm. So yes, they are more likely to cause an adverse reaction than a live viral vaccine sure. or something. And leptospira, yes. of course, um, certainly even in Chicago, veterinarians are promoting this as being a brand new trendy potential infectious disease. Lepto's been around for millions of years probably. It has been. And There's nothing new about nothing lepto. Nothing new and nothing new. And it's probably of, no more common today than it was right. 40 or 50 years ago, but it The diagnostics. Yep. Yeah. Well, the diagnostics uh, really are poor right now. And unfortunately, we have more diagnostic positive cases than we have animals clinical. that are infected mm -hmm. and clinical. That's changing, and I can tell you, and in fact, just uh, within the last month, I've been involved and engaged in some uh, studies with new diagnostics that you're going to be able to probably even do on site, and you will know whether that animal has lepto or not. You're not going to have to rely on a test sent out, sure. and a test that happens to be the gold standard now, which is a microscopic agglutination test called the MAT, which is about as poor a test as you'll ever find. And unfortunately, the ability to interpret the results is very difficult. And this is recognized worldwide. We just had a very large conference on trying to improve diagnostics mm -hmm. that was arranged through the National Institutes of Health and the USDA, we had it down in Ames, Iowa. And there's no question that our gold standard, the microscopic agglutination test, is a, is a problem. And it's, it's giving us false readings in part because we're using serovars, which are strains of lepto that don't even cause disease in right. the dog. Right. And so if by any chance you're testing an animal, or if you have an animal that has recently been tested, and it's reported that it has a high antibody titer on the MAT test to Leptospira autumnalis, or Bratislava, and not to Gripotyphosa, or Pomona, or Icterohemorrhagia, or Canicola, then consider it just an artifact of the testing because the animal does not have lepto. And, and we have, I've had so many lepto cases that aren't lepto cases 
based on that kind of diagnostic. But don't you think that that's part of the, the confusion? Is it is part, part of, of the, the reason that veterinarians are just recommending mass vaccination? Oh, it is part of the confusion. You bet. And yes, uh, lepto, in my view, is no more prevalent today than it was 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. What has changed, though, is the vaccine has improved remarkably. Why? Because now we have the four serovars that in the United States causes the disease, and those four serovars are in the vaccine. Whereas in the past, all the vaccines only had two serovars. So when we had those old vaccines, we saw as much lepto in dogs that weren't vaccinated as we did in vaccinated. And so many practitioners said, well, why should I use this vaccine? I'm still getting the clinical cases. At least today, if you're using the vaccine, and again, you're probably looking at about 70 plus or minus 10%, uh, 60 to 80% effectiveness. Effectiveness uh, meaning protecting against? against disease. And can the animal still still pass or shed that bacteria? there is that potential, but yeah. it reduces even the shedding. And in some of the serovars, it actually, for a period of time, 12 months or maybe even a little longer, prevents the shedding. Depends what the serovar is. Sure. Depends whether the animals are, whether the dog is the reservoir, mm-hmm. like for Canicola, that's going to be very hard to protect against shedding. Whereas if they're not the reservoir for the particular uh, serovar, like gripotyphosa, then you have 12, 16, 18 months and then, prevention of shedding. And then with repeated vaccination, certainly there's concern about adverse reaction. Because Even with the first vaccine. Yeah. Yeah. And this is one of those vaccines now, like Lyme vaccine, that is more likely to cause an adverse reaction just because of the nature of sure. the organism. But uh, uh, I, I happen, if, if I were to recommend a vaccine, I happen to like the outer surface protein A product better than the whole killed cell because it takes some of those potential uh, reactogenic mm-hmm. uh, antigens out of the, the mixture. But with that said, you can still get an adverse reaction even with the outer surface protein A only. Um, the same uh, sort of thing uh, goes for lepto. You're going to have uh, some animals that will react, and they'll react because of the nature of that, that product. Now, it's, it's uh, often overestimated, though. I, I've heard... Uh, figures of like 70% or more, and I don't know where this figure came from, but I see it showing up occasionally, Uh, 70% of vaccinated animals will react. I see more like under 5%. And I don't, I have never used that vaccine, so I can't comment, but it appears that if certainly, if, if you're going to have an adverse event, it would be to a Bactrin. Yes, that's true. Those bacterial vaccines are going to be more reactogenic in the sense that they cause reactions that are seen shortly after vaccination. Type 1, type 2. So, yes, so it's actually linked to the vaccination. Now, when we we have a a reaction like an immune-mediated hemolytic anemia uh, or other autoimmune Uh, disease developing in a genetically predisposed animal, that's usually weeks, months, or even years from vaccination. And then that vaccine, which is often a live viral vaccine, isn't blamed. Right. And that's part of the reason that traditional vets will say, what do you mean? There's no correlation. It was last year your dog had that vaccine. Well, I've seen people that uh, have uh, told donors that it couldn't be a vaccine reaction when it occurred within days. Oh, and I, I have as well. Or oh, three weeks, goodness. there's an autoimmune hemolytic crisis three weeks later. Of course, oh, no, it, it has nothing, nothing to do with the vaccine. Nothing no, to do. Never. It's just um, right. shocking. It's just because it, you know, crossed the wrong street or right. something. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, Bordetella? Bordetella is 
really uh, available to you now in a variety of forms. You can have an oral Bordetello, which is a live uh, attenuated uh, uh, Bordetella organism. Uh, you can use the intranasal, which is also that uh, live uh, Bordetella, or you can use a killed injectable. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, the work that I have done clearly demonstrates that the most effective is the live. And, and that would include both oral and intranasal. Mm -hmm. They both are equally effective against Bordetella. But Bordetella is always accompanied right. by other agents right. in causing so-called canine infectious respiratory disease complex, which we affectionately refer to as kennel cough. And there are so many agents mm -hmm. involved, but the important ones from a... Uh, bacterial standpoint, the most important one happens to be Bordetella. Mm -hmm. And from a viral standpoint, you've got canine distemper that plays a key role. You've got canine parvo, which can play an indirect role by causing suppression of neutrophils, mm -hmm. which will allow the pneumonia to develop mm -hmm. to other agents. We've talk about canine herpes, I don't think it plays much of a role, but it has the potential to. We have canine parainfluenza 5, which can and does play an important role. We have canine coronavirus, respiratory corona now, not that enteric corona that I was talking about. They're totally different viruses. We have no evidence at this time that that corona plays a role. We have a new, as of 2011, canine pneumovirus that looks like it does not play any role. It would be a good virus, probably like corona, and just help stimulate innate immunity and things to, to other agents. So we have a whole variety, Streptococcus equi zoepidemicus, which infects dogs. Mm. That plays a secondary role. I've demonstrated quite nicely that when you have canine influenza together with things like that streptococcus, strep alone does nothing. Mm. But together with flu, like in humans, and older humans generally die yeah, perfect from storm. infection with flu because they get strep Common pneumonia infections. or this right. diplococcus yep. disease. And Bordetella and canine influenza makes a more severe disease. So when we look at vaccination for kennel cough, my recommendation is to use an intranasal canine parainfluenza Bordetella combination. Because even though every dog gets injected when they get a five-way right. vaccine, canine parainfluenza doesn't provide any upper respiratory tract protection. It just provides protection against lower or in this case, the lung. And so, same with the injectable Bordetella, I just, I just think that there's not a reason to even be using it when we have other safer, non-adjuvanted, attenuated options. Well, one of the reasons that, of course, it was very popular is in a fractious dog, it was the only way sure. you could really provide sure. protection. And clearly in shelters, and I do a lot of shelter work, uh, if that is the case, then that vaccine does provide some protection and should be used. Sure, in, in a fractious so, dog. Yeah. yeah. Now, I also know now that by putting muzzle on the dog and giving the uh, oral vaccine, that's an alternative. Mm -hmm. But there are some dogs that you wouldn't even want right. to get right. close enough to put a muzzle That's on. That's true. And in shelter work, that does play a part. It in does. traditional, In the traditional practice setting, those dogs, thankfully, are far and few between. Yes, yes. correct. So, so intranasal. Um, intranasal, and I like the combination parainfluenza bordetella. And that's, of course, if the boarding facility requires it. Yes. Because if the boarding facility doesn't, smart to opt out, statistically right. speaking. I mean, it's something that you would need to do if you if you had to board your pet. A lot of veterinarians will say every six months you've got to come in and get this Bordetella, and people if, assume. If 
that brings up a really important point. If you're going to a boarding facility that requires Bordetella every six months, change because they have a ventilation problem. It's not an infectious problem or they have a hygiene problem. Good, good points so to make. Very good points. Don't really allow anyone to tell you you need to have Bordetella every six months because if you do, then don't go there anymore. Best point made today. Thank you. Very good. Okay, that covers my list of non-core vaccines for dogs. That gave us a great overview. Um, I'm thankful some of them that were not so popular and not so effectively, uh, not so effective were taken off the market. Do you have new vaccines coming? I mean, horizons for new vaccines coming in the market? Always. Always. Any that you can think of that we need to know about? No. Nope. No, All right. None. None that are far enough along or of, of great enough concern. Wonderful. But yes, uh, we're always finding. Whoever expected in 2004 that we would have a uh, new virus of dogs that was capable of causing influenza. Mm -hmm. uh, we've been having dogs infected with influenza since dogs have been right. around and right. since influenza has been around but not that they adapted themselves to the dog so well. and went from dog to dog. Mm -hmm. So, Canine inf influenza vaccine, that's another commonly required vaccine for dog parks, dog runs, boarding. And I'm not sure that that is uh, really required. Uh, my recommendation would be for uh, indoor areas where the dogs are going to be in contact for some period of time. So I don't have a concern about dog parks. This is not a casually transmitted virus. Uh, if you're going to uh, uh, bathing or grooming, mm -hmm. I'm not sure that that particular vaccine is going to be helpful. The one thing, though, to keep in mind is that you can't think about uh, giving this vaccine at the last minute. Right. The dog must be, if it's never seen an influenza vaccine, it must have at least three weeks before there would be any immunity. You need to give two doses and they shouldn't be at an interval of less than two weeks and then one week after the second dose is when you have protection. So unlike Bordetella or parainfluenza, which you can give today and that immunity in a non-specific uh, way, innate immunity, will be engendered immediately by that Bordetella. But with canine influenza, That's you're going to have to have the three, three weeks. weeks. Now, if that animal has been vaccinated previously and is just due for its annual booster, and you must use that particular vaccine annually, then it won't take that long mm -hmm. because they sure. will all have they'll already have memory and that is that is a vaccine I also have never given um, and I would not ever recommend unless it would be required for some like and there are many many uh, kennels that do that require do, of course. sure yeah. sure how much of that is true potential infectious concern versus just covering their bases legally? Yeah, I think it, a lot of it is they're, they're just concerned that uh, if they were to have an outbreak, sure, of course. they would be found at fault sure. because they didn't require yep. the vaccine. Yep. And I think yeah. that a lot of times it's just bouncing liability away from the business owner. Yes. And the, yeah. the pet owner has to be able to discern which of those scenarios is going on. No. Now, what's ironic is that if any of those vaccines that were required would cause an adverse reaction, then that's still the owner's responsibility, even though right. it's been required by a, a facility. Uh, yeah, right. And that's that brings up just a, a side note. The thought of, of course, we have to provide informed consent when we think about uh, not choosing not to vaccinate an animal right now. Absolutely. And yet sometimes some of these vaccines... Should get informed consent to vaccinate. Of course. Of course, do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. I really think that oftentimes we are casual vaccinators. Um, traditional veterinarians are casual vaccinators, and they really are not informing clients of I all think, of the ramifications. Yeah, I think people have to be aware. Now, albeit, 
the number of adverse reactions is very small in the population. One of the things that I really want to emphasize that people don't ever really think about is these adverse reactions are genetically controlled. And so when I talk to breeders, and I talk to many of them, I just talked to National Boston Terrier Association this past week. What I tell them is if they see adverse reactions in puppies from a particular sire bitch mating, don't mate those again. Because instead of this being a rare event, right. it's going to be a very common event. Mm -hmm. And so as an example, you might see an allergic neuritis mm -hmm. or paralysis develop in about one out of 10,000 vaccinations. Yet in a litter of five, it was three out, out of, of five, five. Mm -hmm. and one of them died and two of them were paralyzed. That's not very rare right. in that five, right. but if you put it across the entire Gene canine mm -hmm. population. Mm -hmm. But that brings up another point, just the fact that it is a particular breed mm -hmm. will make a difference. Of course. And then when you get down to the individual litter, there's a lot of variables. Oh, but many. As a Boston Terrier owner myself, of course, I have concerns not just about the immediate reactions, right. but mast cell tumors. And exactly. They're not being correlated, um, which, and I believe there's a strong correlation between overvaccination in, 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 and in mast In a dog, cell. I think you need to look at mast cell tumors, uh, histocytomas, and so forth at injection sites. Mm -hmm. We don't really talk about them in the way that we do in the cat and the injection right. site sarcoma. But yes, anything that stimulates that kind of proliferative response mm -hmm. of cells, if that particular individual, and again, the genetics plays a key role right. here, mm -hmm. if they can transform into a cancer cell, they become neoplastic, and you don't have than an animal that has the suppressor factors mm -hmm. that would be required to control Tr it at exactly. the cell level, yep. it's going to turn into a tumor. It, it will. Yep. It will. And we have not necessarily correlated this um, as a profession enough to be uh, to have a professional consensus that this is occurring. But slowly but surely, people it's like happening. you are, it is it's happening. happening. It yes. is happening. Yeah. And we appreciate you we speaking about we, it. We never thought that a vaccine could cause a lethal tumor in a young, healthy animal. Mm -hmm. And that was one of the greatest awakenings of the profession to the potential adverse events of mm -hmm. a vaccine, mm -hmm. those injection site sarcomas. But with that said, at the very best, we would say that they're about one in a thousand to one in 10,000. But there are practices that have never seen a single case, and there are others that we're seeing like six or eight of them a year. And it wasn't based on the number of cats coming into that practice. Again, that may say something about the genetic pool of, course. of the animals coming into yes, that practice. Sure. Nutritional status. Absolutely. The, 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 the type of vaccine, environmental stress load. Right. Uh, all of those things play into an animal's immunologic sure. response right. and their, their immune system's ability to be resilient and handle abnormal adjuvant stimulation or abnormal immunologic stimulation or not. Right. And I think we sometimes fail to recognize all of those environmental factors playing into a body's immunologic response. Right. Now, one of the things about genetics is the small breed dog. And I keep emphasizing, it's not the small dog. I can take small beagles that don't have the genetics to mm -hmm. develop any of these things. Mm -hmm. And I can do anything with them mm -hmm. and it won't cause an adverse reaction. But there are small breeds that you can't do anything to without having some of these reactions. That's right. And, and so that's critically important. So when you have that kind of dog and you're looking at the question that you asked me earlier, well, what about a lepto? Mm -hmm. Well, is that dog ever likely to get off somebody's lap sure. or out of the house? Yep. And why if it's not, it? why would you why would you even think about a lactobacterin for that dog? Of course. In fact, the people who manufacture the vaccines don't even want those animals 
vaccinated because they are likely to have too many adverse reactions. And so there's this breakdown between the general vaccinating veterinary population, oftentimes, and group breed-specific clubs and groups and individual pet hunters that have had horrific experiences have learned otherwise. Right. But we still have a large number of vaccinating veterinarians that are either unwilling to put the pieces together or are choosing to not look at some of these issues that are clearly well, I, I'm, happening. I'm still uh, shocked by the number of practices that are still giving distemper parvoadeno annually. Mm -hmm. If ever we could get away from this addiction mm -hmm. to vaccination mm -hmm. just for should, the sake of vaccination immunization not vaccination yes, correct yes yeah. and and they're hugely different and the average they're veterinarian very different yes we just don't yeah, discuss being different. immunized versus vaccinated frustrating yeah. certainly yeah. So then that brings me to um, my last topic of conversation. You're involved with some, a lot of really great projects, but one of them, close to my heart, is the Rabies Challenge Fund. Right. For people that aren't familiar with the Rabies Challenge Fund, tell us about what you, well, what what, you have been doing. What we've been uh, doing for uh, more than five years now is we've been trying to answer the question, can we get and how long can that protection be afforded by rabies vaccines. And right now, we have vaccines that are licensed that have a one-year or a three-year license, and many of those vaccines happen to be the same product. It's just the way that they were originally produced and, and licensed. And so we're looking beyond the three-year and trying to ask the, the question, only uh, by doing these kinds of studies, and they are very difficult, they're very expensive studies, can we answer that mm -hmm. question? And the way a rabies vaccine is licensed uh, is uh, the USDA requires that a vaccinated group be challenged with rabies virus at whatever time after uh, the product is given to get a uh, three-year or at five years uh, or seven years, whatever it might be. Uh, and then there has to be a control group of dogs that are not vaccinated, and they have to, when challenged, a certain percentage of them must develop rabies mm -hmm. to be sure that the challenge was good. And then of the vaccinated group, 88% or more of them must be protected. Mm -hmm. So that's the way those studies are done. And so our, our studies right now, we are at five years with one of the vaccines that we're testing, and we're at three years with the other. And we're trying to determine now whether or not the vaccines will be effective mm -hmm. at five years. And it's uh, as we speak, uh, literally, we should know uh, whether or not we've got uh, uh, protection based on tests that we're doing that are in vitro. If those tests prove to uh, show that there should be protection, then we'll actually do the challenge yeah. itself. Mm -hmm. And that, uh, that of course, uh, entails some uh, special facilities and tremendous amount of, of care and money, uh, and money uh, because, you know, challenging these animals means that they are going to get rabid and they are a potential hazard. So it's, it's only in, in uh, a limited number of facilities that that kind of work can be done. Sure. And that's an unfortunate but necessary step in determining, of course, if the vaccine is, of course, effective or not. Or not. Yeah. And so you have two years left for one of the products and then four years left for the other product. If we, yeah, well, we've got uh, 
We've got the three year and one now, and if we go to five or okay. yeah, maybe seven. So, yeah, okay. well, if we went to seven, it would be four years. Yeah. And this is, of course, three not years. funded. The government isn't giving you money for this. No, there's the no state no, isn't giving you money. No one that uh, really is interested in this other than caring dog owners. Right, and, right. Uh, and those of us that don't want to continue giving a three year if we don't have to. So it's it's passionate pet people right. that are interested. And of course, we, we're all law-abiding law citizens. We want to respect the law. However, we are concerned. We know that the vaccine may last much longer than three years. We just don't know how long. And your study is really helping us. We're trying to determine that. Exactly. Yeah. Legal and ethically and morally being able to determine that yeah. so we have a better, safer option. We want Correct. our dogs protected, but not necessarily over-vaccinated. And so this right. study is really helping to demonstrate that. That's what we're attempting to do. And I often get the question, are you looking at cats? And the answer is no, we do not have cats vaccinated. But important thing to understand, uh, and this is not from a legal standpoint now or from uh, the standpoint of whether or not the vaccine, if we show, is effective in the dog, can be uh, essentially given to a cat. But cats are more naturally resistant to rabies than dogs are. So they are very likely to uh, uh, have immunity for as long or longer than a dog will. But with that said, you do have to, uh, and it would be necessary to do the studies in a cat. But uh, yeah. I think from an um, informational standpoint, we would know. Sure. That, that, that the cats yes, by, by default, right. or if the dog it, is protected, by default the, the, the cat, cat will be, be is, protected. Is due. Yes. Yeah, that's great. Yes. Yes. Well, it's such important work that you're doing. You're the only, the Rabies Challenge Fund is the only a nonprofit organization really specifically set up to study this. You're doing a great job of um, plugging away at the research necessary. All of the research, of course, takes funding, and that's yes. part of our involvement and, is helping you. And we need, yeah, we do need to, to continue. The funding part. Yeah, but and we should soon have an answer too, at least for that first vaccine. Which is exciting. Yes. And gives us all um, reason to continue to want to support your work and exactly what you're doing. So I appreciate you talking about all of these important topics today. Well, thank you. I appreciate I you joining appreciate us. appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. As you know, I like to talk about all of them. <laughs> yes, you do. And that's good. <laughs> you're very good at it. We appreciate you joining us here today. Okay. Thanks.